This is P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. And this is my short autobiographical message titled Prayer Changes Things and a Prayer Changes Me, delivered at City Church Corpus Christi. I hope you enjoy it. No, I don't need a mic. I need a lot of things, and a mic is not one of them. The music was superb, uh, as it always is at uh, this church, and it's uh, just a delight to see all of you, but particularly to see all of you at a church prayer meeting. Sadly, I must report that, at least from my anecdotal evidence, church prayer meetings are largely becoming obsolete. Uh, it's a tragedy. Um, people don't emphasize, churches don't emphasize prayer much anymore, particularly not corporate prayer and prayer meetings as they did years ago. And it shows. And the day that our corporate prayer meetings equal in attendance the size of our Sunday morning worship services, that will herald a time of great revival and great reformation. And let's pray for and work for that time. I'm not going to speak long, of course. We need to pray. But uh, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 in your Bible. Uh, But before we read that text and after we read it, I'm only going to make one main point. You know, some ministers make three points and then end with a sentimental poem. I'm only going to make one point and will not conclude with a poem, I can assure you. However, before I read that text, just for a moment, I'm going to relate a little uh, autobiographical evidence, and I almost never do that because I don't think my life is all that interesting and I don't think that other people would be interested in hearing much about my life. But I think that's a little different this evening. I was born into a very devout Christian family and my mom and dad were committed to prayer. They talked about prayer and they prayed all the time and they got prayers answered all the time. My dad was a preacher of the gospel, is a preacher of the gospel, just experienced his uh, 88th birthday, and he's still praying and still getting prayers answered. So I was nourished in that kind of life. In my um, early years of ministry, it would have been, now I think my early 20s, I encountered a theology, uh, the 16th and 17th century Reformational theology, particularly the Reformed wing of that Reformation, and I appreciate it and learned a great deal from it. And to this day, I'm profoundly grateful 
for all that I learned from it. Sadly, however, over time, uh, I sort of developed, because of uh, my exalted views of God's sovereignty, or at least what I thought was an exalted view of God's sovereignty and predestination, my prayer life uh, became uh, perfunctory and rather anemic, frankly. And I must confess, sadly and shamefacedly, almost worthless. But by God and his good providence, I encountered again a set of books that I had looked at and didn't give much credence to many years before, the works of a Methodist evangelist, late 19th, early 20th century, Ian Bounds, his books on prayer. Uh, I read them, consumed them. I'm just about finished reading through all of his books on prayer for the fourth time. Uh, I hope to finish all of those books. You can get them all in a single fairly large volume. I hope to read that again 20 times before I die. Um, it's a transformational uh, set of books. I don't believe anybody since uh, the New Testament has ever written so much, certainly not in English, on this topic. Not principally on the greatness of prayer, but on the greatness of answered prayer, which is not the same thing. And so, because he made his case uh, from the scriptures, again and again, quoting scripture, and pointing out all of the promises of the word of God on answered prayer, I began to start praying. And I noticed something odd. I prayed in simple faith, despite my sinfulness, despite my weakness and finiteness. I prayed in faith, and you know what? God started answering prayer. And the more that I prayed, and the more that I prayed in faith, God kept answering. Not every single prayer, but most of them. Most of them. And I started preaching on prayer in our church in California. In fact, I was so consumed with it that for an entire year, I preached every single Sunday on prayer. Now, I don't recommend that anyone else do that. <laughs> but the imbalance had been so great, and the imbalance has been quite great in our culture, churches, that it, we could do worse than preach on prayer a great deal. So God answered prayers in the congregation. Every Sunday, people would be standing up. We'd have a time, maybe 10 minutes of people standing up. This, we prayed about this a few weeks ago, or months ago, or years ago, and God answered. And he answered. And he answered. And that inspired even greater faith. A transformed life. But then, because I want to be intellectually honest, I came to a fork in the road in my thinking. And I had to ask, you know, either I'm going to have to stop all of this praying, stop getting all of these prayers answered, stop preaching about answered prayer, stop stressing the glory of God in answered prayer, or change my theology. And so I decided to change my theology. I'm still reformational, but I must tell you, when God does a great work in answering prayer in your life, there's nothing you can do but keep praying. And if your theology and your ideas get in the way, it's much better to live glorifying God and getting answered prayer Amen. than assuring that your, what you consider to be correct theology is what it is. 
One of the texts that changed my thinking was Matthew chapter 7, a text most of you, if not all of you, know. And I'm going to make one point. Matthew 7, this of course is in what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I would draw your attention to a striking fact. God is a heavenly, a loving Heavenly Father to his children, and he wants to give them good things that they ask for. Not only does he want to, he promises to, and not only does he promise to do that, he, of all people, has the means and the wherewithal to give them what they ask. There is, you know, an idea popular today that claims to give God the glory, that asserts that God is some sort of very harsh father who is constantly wanting to bruise and harm his children, and that we cannot go to him and just ask him as tender children to do good things for us because he has better things for us, better things, I say, than to give us what we ask for. I have come to believe that that view is not merely wrong, but nearly blasphemous. Yes, God does sometimes discipline his children for his glory. No question about that. But God is a loving, heavenly father that loves to do good things for his children. Now think about this for a moment, and I'm almost done. If you fathers, or as the case may be mothers, let's say you fathers, if your children come to you and ask something that will not harm them, that's good. And just because you love them, they want something. It's not something they need. It's something that they want, and it won't hurt them. Generally, if you have the wherewithal, what are you going to do? You're going to give it to them. Doesn't it make you happy, and don't you rejoice to do that and see the light in their eyes and the delight getting this thing? And doesn't that inspire their confidence in you and their love for you? Yes. Now, I have a follow-up question. Do you believe that you're a better father than God is? If that is the case, then I think we should spend more time doing what this passage says, ask, seek, and knock, and claiming the promises of this word. Some people say, well, no, it actually must be more complicated than that. Actually, it's not. It's not. Just ask God with a sincere heart. Humbly ask him, Lord, I need your help. It need not be a long, extensive, theologically or rhetorically beautiful prayer. It may be, Lord, I'm in desperate need. Please help. Lord, this person is sick. Please heal for your glory. Lord, I need money. There's a bill. It's an honest bill. It needs to be paid. Lord, we need a new vehicle. We need to get to church. We need to get to work. There's a friend. There's a broken relationship. Lord, please heal this. Churches have great needs, great prayers. Get on your face before God. The first thing is not to decide 
some sort of unusual plan or plan of action. Let me give you what should always be whenever there is a difficulty or a challenge. Let me tell you what God says should always be. I'm telling you this because I'm so smart, you see. It's not because of that. The first plan of action when that happens is to say, let's pray about this. The Bible says that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. If that is the case, nothing is too hard for prayer. Nothing is too hard for prayer if nothing is too hard for the Lord. We need an entire generation, an entire group of churches that will wake up to this fact and start praying again. I'll conclude with this. Some of you here are students of history, particularly church history. It's interesting how that in the Victorian era, particularly in England, of course, and in the United States and other English-speaking countries, there was a remarkable time of uh, revivals in the 19th century, earlier too, but also in the 19th century. And the tide entered into the 20th century, early in the 20th century, despite the world wars and so on. And uh, it's remarkable what God was doing. Yes, there was apostasy. Yes, there was evil, but also great revival in many, many churches, certainly much more than today. Interestingly enough, it's remarkable that in the 19th century, there were a number of people, Bounds was one of them, but there were many others who were writing about prayer. And people were praying all over the place, and there were prayer meetings. Uh, It seems to me that one reason, perhaps the main reason, that there was such a push for missionaries to go throughout the world, and so many souls converted, and churches raised up and planted, of all Christian denominations and groups, is because people were praying. And then it seems along about 1940, after World War II, that emphasis seemed to subside. Not in all churches, but it seemed sort of collectively to subside. And now we have what we see today. So I would suggest that if we want to return the church of Jesus Christ and the advance of the kingdom of God to a high tide, we probably should spend time praying more aggressively and stress not only the greatness of prayer, but the greatness of answered prayer. God blessings to you all.